Hey everybody, welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast. And today I am joined with Alan Hone, Director of Software Strategy at Lockheed Martin. Alan, what's up, man? How you doing? Hey, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And today I think it's going to be a pretty interesting conversation, at least for me, I'm sure for you and for everybody else, because we're overall going to be talking about Kubernetes at the edge. And for me, I... I don't know. I don't know about you, but every time I ask somebody like, hey, what does, you know, edge mean or what is, you know, what does it mean from a Kubernetes perspective? I either get a different answer every time or I get a it's a buzzword. It's really nothing in reality when it comes to Kubernetes. So I, I guess like let's, you know, start off there. Like what how do you kind of feel about it? Yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting because I think you're exactly right. I think, um, you know, at the edge can mean so many different things. And, you know, for, for some people, it just means, you know, outside the cloud, um, which which isn't always a, a really helpful definition. Um, but there's there's interesting cases, you know, whether it's, you know, your Internet of Things, um, you know, kind of using clusters that are co-located with lots of small devices in order to um, accomplish some some task without having to always you know, reach back to the mothership. Um, what the other thing that I think is interesting about it, obviously, you know, in my my line of work in the defense industry, we've used the term the at the edge um, for for other purposes, um, and and for the most part, we're talking about what we sometimes call the tactical edge, which is, you know, you've got um, people deployed in the field, or you have assets that are you know on the other side of the world, and you don't always have the connectivity to them that you would like, you know, either for operational reasons or just, just bandwidth limitations. You know, you don't always have, you have mission critical things going on there. So you don't always have the ability to kind of trivially push updates. And I think those are some of the kind of, kind of the things that make it worth talking about Kubernetes at the edge, because the way that you deploy, the way that you update, um, and the way that you operate changes because you are in that, you know, what we would consider to be you know, somewhat limited environment. Got it. Okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, edge is like a cache almost. Yeah. You, you know, you could definitely think about it that way. Um, you know, you, you've got the issues of, of disconnection, of, um, you know, uncertain state, uh, a lot of things that, that go along with, you know, the reasons you'd use a cache. Um, it, it, I think there's, there's some other factors that enter into it as well. One, one is that you are you are electing to do local processing because you need the responsiveness that you that you can only get if you have that kind of local processing. Because even in this age of of satellites and mostly universal internet, um, you know it's still different talking to servers back in the United States when you're on the other side of the world. Um, and then the other the other part of it is really the you know the mission criticality. Um, you know we. We, we talk in terms of things like um, of safety critical systems or mission critical systems, and that affects the architectural decisions that you make. It affects the you know what you prioritize because you tend to prioritize predictability of the system over scalability. Um, you know in the in the in the cloud world, um, you know particularly for systems that need to scale to the millions or billions, um, you know we we tend to allow a little bit of unpredictability. Um, in things like response times and latency in order to get that ability to scale massively. And it's exactly the opposite at the edge. You want that predictability. You want to be sure that the processing will finish in exactly the right amount of time. And you're willing to give up the scalability for that because you're not, you're not solving those kinds of problems. 
Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And you know, it's funny, like what this is making me think of is I think the AWS services is, is CDN that does this. I forget, but yeah, I think it's CDN, but one of the services, like essentially what would happen is let's say you had a website and you had customers, you know, e-commerce e website and you got customers all around the world. You got some at parts of the UK, you got some in parts of the US, you got some in, in parts of Asia, you know, just kind of all over the place. Instead of having, you know, one location. So for example, if it was hosted in US, the UK folks would be going to the US servers, the Asia folks would be going to the US servers. But that obviously causes a ton of latency. There's packet dropping, all of that, because it's going uh, far distance, right, from a bandwidth perspective. So instead, you would set up, you know, again, almost like a cache of sorts where maybe there's a couple in the UK, maybe there's a couple in Asia. That way, it's faster and a little bit more predictable to be able to reach the e-commerce website. And that's that's kind of what it sounds like to me, like at a high level, obviously. Um, the, the edge and Kubernetes in general is not just about running websites, but like at a holistic level, that's that's kind of what it sounds like to me in a sense. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, the 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 physical world, like we 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 one of the great things about Kubernetes is that it, it's an abstraction. It enables us to kind of forget that we have physical servers and physical networks. But the the you know the real world does intrude, and that that idea of locality is still really important. And um, you know you, you you can't just exactly as you say you can't just expect to centralize and uh, and and serve everyone. The way that you would like to that that concept of of actual physical locality still does matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I always like to say I so somebody's going to get mad at me at this uh, about this at some point, <laughs> but I always say that technical marketing is really good at uh, attempting to tell us certain things. And one of those things is like everything's in the cloud. It's totally fine. You could run it wherever. Uh, and that's not the the reality. Like the uncomfortable reality is that there are still organizations in today's world that need to run things on-prem, that need to run things in certain locations, that need to run things in certain data centers. I remember even, you know, years ago, I worked briefly at an organization that was in the gaming industry. So like betting and stuff like that. And like, I remember there were certain locations because it was a worldwide company. So I remember at certain locations, we had to run the betting app on a local server, like sitting in a data center in a specific location. Otherwise, it, like it was, there was legalities there, there was compliance needs and all of that stuff. So like it literally wouldn't have been able to run otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is funny the way that, you know, it, it kind of is exactly that it's the real world kind of intruding and, uh, you know, kind of getting us away from, you know, what we otherwise think would be a, would be a perfect architecture. I think your your comment about about kind of cloud and marketing is is very true. You know, on the one hand, you have the optimists that like everything is going to wind up in the cloud and it'll all just be, you know, you know, just thin clients and remote computing. And on the other side, you have the people who are who kind of say, well, the, you know, the cloud is just someone else's computer. Um, and and you know, kind of, I think some somewhere in the middle there, um, it is unquestionably true that the cloud brings us new architectural patterns that allow us to do amazing things. But that doesn't mean that those architectural patterns are the right patterns for for every single application that we might need to build um, for a variety of reasons. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No. I totally agree. And you know what? I think that there are. How can I put it? I would say, like from a production perspective, you know, a lot of not only older organizations, but a lot of worldwide organizations, depending on 
the compliance needs, they're always going to have some type of uh, requirement to run specifically somewhere. Whereas, you know, if you take a look at, you know, certain startups and stuff like that, you know, let's say they're building some type of e-commerce product or they're building some type of AI product or, uh, you know, some type of like marketing tool, like whatever the case may be, you know, any any type of application that wouldn't have specific regulatory requirements, those I think are more of like in the new world of, yeah, you can run anything in the cloud. But Mm -hmm. then when you get into certain organizations that have, you know, because I have a healthcare background, you know, so if you have some type of high trust requirements, if you have some type of HIPAA requirements, if you have some type of PCI requirements, like though that that's when the real world starts to come into play. And you're like, well, yeah. wait a minute, where can I actually run this stuff? And if if I'm not mistaken, you said before the organization that you work for is in like defense. So you have a ton of <laughs> regulatory requirements that you need to meet. Yeah, it, you know, you you've nailed it exactly, right? We have um and and what's interesting is the, you know, the cloud vendors are working to, you know, accommodate that and and bring, you know, their capabilities into our space. So, you know, the in addition to the regular AWS public cloud um or the the Azure cloud, you know, there is also AWS has GovCloud, which is, you know, US only, US personnel, you know, kind of different rules for administrative access. And that's all done so that you can have, you you know, U.S. what's called controlled unclassified or export controlled information, um, you know, hosted in that space. Um, so you get the benefits of the cloud, um, but you get that that extra set of controls. And, you know, similarly, on the Microsoft side, you see, uh, you see Azure moving in that direction with what they call GCC High. Um, and then both cases, interestingly enough, of, of those companies are moving as well into classified environments, um, which is a completely different set of controls that is really super challenging. Um, you know, as we were talking about at the edge, like one of the things that makes it challenging is you can't make the assumption that you're ever going to be able to connect to the internet. Um, you know, in, in, in the case of classified systems, for example, those are completely air-gapped and they're, they're permanently air-gapped. And there are mechanisms for, you know, almost sneaker netting, um, you know, it, container images or applications or software across that boundary, but um, it has to be done in a very controlled way. Uh, and so it, it, it moves, you know, kind of to even that, that more level of saying, okay, well, you know, not only is this kind of at the edge for connectivity or bandwidth reasons, but um, it might be a completely isolated environment that, you know, maybe the vast majority of, of even your software developers are, are never allowed to access. Right. So it's, it, it brings along a ton of challenges from a, from things like a dev, a, a DevOps perspective of, you know, how can I be a DevOps team when my devs aren't allowed to ever see ops? Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So, you know, really from your perspective, the edge is some type of environment that number one is almost never touching the internet. And number two is effectively doing a specific job at a specific location. So with that, I mean, I guess then my question is, does edge in the cloud make sense or does it make more sense to run those workloads locally in some data center? Like, for example, the way that you're explaining it, like what I'm thinking to myself is I want to run my Kubernetes clusters on prem at the edge. You know, maybe they're running K3S as, you know, some type of like ARM style deployment. Uh, Maybe they're running on a localized server and I'm bootstrapping with Kubeadm or something like that. Because 
that's the, how can I put it? That's the best method, in my opinion, to ensure that you know exactly what's running, how it's running, what ingress and egress traffic is going out, what exact version it's running, all of that stuff. Yeah, you've you've hit it exactly. I think um, that that's a really common pattern for us. Um, you know, when where we deploy Kubernetes, you know, quote unquote Kubernetes to the edge, um, it does tend to be the, those lighter weight clusters like K3S. Um, you know, it uh, it tends to be you know more static in terms of of what gets deployed to the cluster on startup. Um, it tends to be an environment where you know maybe the cluster gets shut down and started back up again in a way that's that would be very atypical. For a Kubernetes cluster in the cloud, um, you know, I think we we talked a minute ago about cloud vendors kind of you know trying to bring some of their capabilities into these environments, and you know that that also extends to the to the, to the edge. Um, you see things like Snowball uh, from the Amazon folks that you know uh, you know they try to put like a kind of a you know an, an existing. It's almost like you know a cross between on prem and the cloud because it's configured with all the same APIs you would call in a cloud environment. Um, but you're only talking to you know one rack of equipment, um, and and so I think there you know it kind of depends on on the pattern. If you're um, if you're on board you know say like a um, an aircraft um, or you're on board um, you know some other small platform like that, you maybe don't have room for that. If you're if you're in a ship or you're in a tent in the, in you know somewhere in the other part of the world or you're in a building right because it's a base but just happens to be on the other side of the world, then you have a few more options. Got it. Okay, so. I'm actually thinking about another scenario here, and I'm curious on your thoughts to see if this would be considered at the edge or not, because I think it is. Um, I I don't know if they still do it, but I remember reading and, and seeing a video a while back that Chick-fil-A, uh, like a fast food restaurant, runs Kubernetes clusters at each location. I think they're running them in like Intel Nooks or something like that um, for the cash register applications. Would that, in your opinion, be considered something at the edge? I, I guess so, right? Yeah, I saw that. I saw that story. That was really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would I would consider it that way. I think it has a couple of the features that we talked about. You know, one is the the limited connectivity upstream. Even though obviously, you know, restaurants are not air gapped to their um, they can access the internet. Um, they still you, you you they tend to have limited bandwidth, and what bandwidth they have tends to be reserved for what we would call mission critical data you know or they would call business critical data as opposed to you know just you 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 know use as much bandwidth as you want to push a slightly new version of the application um you know the other thing is that they also have kind of business critical constraints on when things can be up, updated right like i i don't I, I would guess that their development team is not pushing updates to container images in the middle of the lunch rush you know when the when the drive through line is out into the street um, because you just, you know, again, this is one of these things where you just prefer predictability over scalability or, you know, the ability to continuously deliver to production. So, you know, I think, I think in that sense, it kind of shows that, you know, what, when we talk about the edge, we're talking more about cases where the, the traditional cloud-based deployment priorities break down a little bit. Um, it's no longer about how big you can scale. It's, it's about how predictable and how reliable you can be. At small scale. Right. And I think the other thing that also comes up here is the fact that, you know, again, thinking about the way that the world is going right now, it's all about the DevOps methodologies of moving as fast as possible, being able to push five, 10 commits a day, container images being updated, automatically deployed, 
GitOps, yada, yada, insert more buzzwords here. But with the edge approach, it's almost like we're going back to waterfall almost. Uh, and for those of you listening that don't know what waterfall is, it's just like a project management strategy, essentially, where we would essentially move incredibly slow. <laughs> so like, for example, what you're saying is, you know, people can't uh, incorporate a DevOps strategy where it's like, hey, you, your devs are pushing five, 10 commits a day. Uh, and they're pushing to the latest container image. That container image is being vetted automatically, being pushed to production. Maybe because there are some organizations that like they're pushing, you know, five x times a day to production. But at the edge, from this perspective, that necessarily wouldn't be the case because there would be certain intervals and certain windows where it's like, okay, now we can push the latest container image. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good way to look at it. And and you know, it, it does bring in. You know, maybe not the whole waterfall method because you do still want to be able to, you know, res be responsive and, and get changes out there and learn quickly, which are all right. the DevOps principles. But, um, but it does include, you know, this this idea of gates. You know, we're we're going to introduce some, you know, additional step, whether it's, um, you know, additional independent testing or an evaluation, or, you know, whether it's. Um, as you said, just waiting for certain times of the day to do updates. Um, you know, so it does it does move away from maybe a continuous delivery and more to kind of a periodic but still frequent kind of delivery. Um, I think that's a really good way to look at it. It, um, it yeah, I, I think you know it, it goes back to this idea. I mean, in addition to what we talked about, just in terms of predictability and reliability, it's also this idea that if you have all of these individual clusters deployed across your thousands of stores in Chick-fil-A's case, you know, they're probably not hiring somebody who has the you know, certified Kubernetes administrator um, credentials to run each of those stores, right? So if you don't have a local admin who can get into the console and can you know, figure out what's going wrong with the cluster, you're going to be a little bit more concerned about um, you know, pushing things to it that could potentially break stuff. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that totally makes sense. So question for you, and I'm not even sure if you can answer this, but I'm just curious if you can't just tell me to shut up. Totally fine. <laughs> but <laughs> How do you uh, get Kubernetes API updates out? Do you have like a certain interval as well for your clusters that are at the edge? So for example, if you want to move from 1.23 to 1.24 or minor versions, uh, updates, whatever the case may be, do you have a specific like set time where you say, okay, this edge location can now uh, be open to the internet and go out and pull the update? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly how it works. Um, you know, we, what we tend to do when we deliver um, out to platforms in in you know various disconnected locations is we we essentially just build up an image um, that contains you know both the the lower level operating system you know and the necessary stuff to get that that Kubernetes cluster bootstrapped. And so, you know, because those things are kind of bundled together, um, we, we release incrementally to those, you know, again, not continuously, but, but try to make it frequently. And, um, you know, so we can have operating system packages get updated, or we can have a, a newer version of the Kubernetes cluster kind of come along for the ride. Um, one of the real advantages of containers, and, and one thing that, you know, you, you maybe were, were, were planning to ask, and I'm, I'm stealing your question, um, you know, people sometimes ask if, you're, if you have to go to all this trouble in order to run Kubernetes at the edge, like why bother, right? Why are you containerizing your, your application in the first place? Um, but one of the real advantages that we get from it is traditionally that package that I just talked about where we deliver a whole image to production, um, that would have been everything. It would have been you know 100% of all of the applications. Containerization lets us uh, really break that up in a way that's considerably safer. 
So while we might still deliver a relatively sizable image with the operating system and the cluster, everything else on top of it is still individual container image delivery. Um, and that enables us to do more frequent delivery than we otherwise could, which is which is a huge benefit to our responsiveness. Oh yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. I think there's I think that there's a common misconception right now where like the whole idea of like cloud native deployment strategies and stuff means you have to be in the cloud or you have to be um, you know using some type of Kubernetes service, but that's not the case. And I don't really think that's like I mean that's obviously a cool thing and important and crucial and whatever from a Kubernetes and containerization perspective. But like you said, like the, the actual power behind Kubernetes and containerization isn't, am I running in the cloud? Am I running a managed service, et cetera? It's the idea of like way back when we had in ESI, ESXi boxes and we had a bunch of VMs running and we had to install the operating system and get the operating system up and running. And then we had to install binaries all over the place. We had to confirm those binaries worked. And oh, by the way, we had to wait for hardware and we had to wait for whoever to actually create the VMs and, and configure them and, and all that stuff. With containerization, with Kubernetes, like that's not the case. You have your containerized application, you deploy it, you're good to go. Now, of course, there's a gajillion things that happen in the middle there, but it's a far easier approach to actually deploying and splitting up your binaries versus what we had to do before. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that's exactly why everybody would still want to run Kubernetes or yeah. just containerization in general, right? You know, I, I have, right. um, I'm working with a client right now that's running their workloads in ECS instead of uh, Kubernetes because they're a smaller shop. Awesome. That's great. You're still containerizing mm -hmm. your workloads. You're still scheduling them out. You're still updating them in a certain way. You're still configuring them in a certain fashion. And that's kind of the power behind containerization. It's not like, oh, can I run in the cloud? It's like, how can I split up my applications to not only make deploying easier, but to make fixing bugs easier, to make updating easier, all that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, we 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 work on on programs where you know maybe we don't have room or the need for a full Kubernetes cluster out there, but um, we certainly containers make sense, and we just run them right on top of the container engine, and we still get those benefits. And in an environment like that, where you you do really care about predictability and reliability, the isolation that you get from containers. Um, you know, brings a whole a whole new aspect to you know how you achieve that predictability and reliability. Um, it, it also you know for our obviously our security people care very deeply about um, you know what how do you know what's running in your environment? You know how can you be sure that this thing that's running if it ends up being malicious can't affect that thing? Um, you know and, and all of those kinds of problems. And so uh, you know putting things in containers has just an enormous number of benefits um, from predictability, reliability, security, all of those. Yep, exactly. And uh, when you when you were talking about segregation, it made me think Linux namespaces are a beautiful thing. Uh, <laughs> for 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 everybody listening that uh, isn't aware of like you know Linux namespaces and and C groups and all of that, Lin Linux namespaces are like what the whole idea of segregation is overall, um, and that's what a lot of Kubernetes is utilizing on the back end. So yeah, it's 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 very much. Uh, an appropriate way to deploy in today's world. I mean, you know, I, I think we, we've kind of seen tech go through uh, a, how can I put it, a differentiation or, or not even a differentiation, just like an overall change where we started out with mainframes, right, which were humongous. And now we're at the smallest unit, which is, you know, a, a container. And 
as you kind of go through that timeline, there's, there's an obvious trend there, which is we're trying to make things as small as possible that still run as efficiently as possible. So that's the whole idea here. Like the whole idea behind production environments in general isn't like using the latest and greatest technology. It isn't using the coolest thing out there. It isn't using the best framework. It's how can I run this thing as as small of a unit as possible, but it's still efficient and production ready. Right. Yeah. Over over the years, you know, we've we've definitely learned, and you know, I, I've worked in the defense business for for twenty five years now, and and you know, worked on some pretty gnarly legacy systems, and <laughs> you know, where where we always ran into trouble was in the um, the coupling, you know, the interconnection between different parts of our code, and you know, when you're running on you know three. Motorola 68030 processors, which, you know, I'm dating myself, but, you know, talk, you're talking, you know, a couple megahertz and, um, you know, they, they don't have a really fast interconnect and there is no ethernet, um, you know, then the only way that you can share data amongst the parts of your program is, is by shared memory and global state. And, you know, that you get all of the problems that that entails. And, you know, for, for those that, that didn't have to go through that, you know, I think you should consider yourselves fortunate that we have computers now that are fast enough that we can truly isolate all of the small bits and bobs of our applications, solely have them communicate with each other through sockets because it removes an entire class of programmer problems and really architect problems that uh, you just don't have to worry about anymore. Yep. Yeah, I think that there were certainly pros to going through uh, everything that we, that we went through way back when. But I think you're absolutely right. The reality is, is that a lot of engineers getting into it today, like don't have to go through those problems. Uh, although I do think that it opened up. Uh, how can I put it? It opened up uh, the the mindset of like we we continuously keep doing the same things, right? Like you know virtualization of uh, VMs aren't any different than running on bare metal containers, you know, are a smaller form factor of uh, virtualization essentially. Right. So it's like we continuously see these trends of what's happening in the space, which is uh, uh, very interesting in my opinion. So yeah. Alan wrapping up here, uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to plug away. I know you have an awesome book that just came out. I actually went through it. Uh, I got a, I got a copy of it from no starch, which was cool. I thought it was a great book. So feel free to plug anything that you'd like from your book to anything else. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, so I, I did have the the chance to to write a book. It's called The Book of Kubernetes. Um, it's published by No Starch Press. And, uh, you know, in it, I go through some of what we talked about today. I go through in detail things like Linux namespaces and C groups and, and why those are important and why they enable containers to be as awesome as they are. Um, and then we kind of start with a Kubernetes cluster and we build it from the ground up. Um, I thought it was really important to uh, to show folks that are getting into this space, you know, the you know how you can open up that black box because if you go through a typical Kubernetes tutorial, it can be very opaque. Um, it tells you run these commands and you run them, and then it says congratulations, your container is running in the cluster. And that doesn't really help you, you know, debug. It doesn't help you understand a lot of the architectural challenges that we were just talking about, how do I prioritize scalability or predictability or try to get a balance of both? And so, you know, my book is intended to, to help open the door to that, um, help you peek inside that black box and uh, really understand what's going on uh, in a way that, that gets you information you can use to make smarter decisions as you build containerized applications. So it's called the book of Kubernetes. Um, kind of buy it anywhere where books are sold, Amazon, your local bookstore, and uh, help you check it out. Hope you like it. 
Awesome. Well, Alan, thank you so much for coming on today. I know this episode was ridiculously informative because I don't think I really had a good understanding of what Edge was prior to this. So thank you so much. And I'm sure everybody listening uh, definitely got a big benefit out of it. So thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my, my pleasure. You know, again, really appreciate you having me on. It's been a great conversation. Uh, it's, it's always great to, to get to chat with somebody who has, you know, the, the depth of experience that, that you've got and can put that experience into practice. So I had a great time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alan.